All right, hello and welcome again to RealCom's third installment in our three-part cybersecurity and privacy series. I'm Chuck Neiswanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your RealCom host for today's webinar, all about privacy. I think you're gonna get a lot out of it. Thank you for tuning in to the live session or viewing this as a recording. We have just a ton of experience on this panel, all in technology and cyber. So I don't know, you may even wanna take some notes, but before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items that'll help you have a great webinar experience. Thanks again to all of our live attendees. We do encourage you all throughout this webinar to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We wanna hear from you, so don't hesitate to, to ask any question that you may have of this panel. Um, we'll try to get to all the questions, but if we don't, don't worry, uh, we'll try to follow up with you after the event has concluded. In the handout section today, you'll find last week's OT Cyber presentation. There's bios there. Um, if you want to see the presentation from uh, from the first session, you'll probably want to log on to realcom.com webinars and connect to the IT cyber recording in the past webinars. So that'll give you a full set of the discussion as well as uh, any of the polling results and all that. T today, same thing, it's a dynamic discussion. There are no slides, so uh, there's no, no handouts in that sense. But you will find a comprehensive pre presenter bio, as I mentioned, and we've included a special document titled The Digital Surveillance State of China, a study of China's video surveillance and social credit scoring systems. Our panel may refer to that during the discussion, so you're welcome to download that piece. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. You know, you won't learn anything by watching Hackers from 1995 with Angelina Jolie, so stay with us. You'll learn a lot more about today's uh, privacy experience. But if you are experiencing technical difficulties, could be with connectivity, sound, video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again. You can also email Ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event, but don't worry, you won't miss anything, because like I said, you'll get a recording later on today with a link to the entire video. Before we get started, uh, we've got about, it looks like at least about 60 people online. Let's do a, a quick poll to see who we have in the live audience. Um, this is an easy question for you. You just got to identify with what your role is. Uh, that way we may even tailor the conversation a little bit towards the executive side, the security side. We've got a lot of security specialists and a lot of security information on this panel. So um, uh, by all means, uh, make sure you get your, your position in. I hope I covered all of the positions that you have. So, all right, good. All right, so, so now, before uh, let me uh, bring in our moderator is jim young he's the co-founder and ceo of realcom welcome jim waiting to hear your voice so i can make sure that we're on good uh, good to be here and and thank you for that uh, that really good introduction it's it's going to be a um, a very good conversation today uh one that we've actually been having for quite a long time but uh, the, the cadence of these conversations seems to be increasing and, and the complicated nature of this conversation, as you're gonna see in today's webinar, um, does not always have easy answers. So- You know, I think Jim, the other thing too, I was gonna mention, uh, and uh, the way this webinar series was put together, IT security, OT security, privacy, 
really covers the gamut of what people would want to hear about from yep. trusted advisors that they can get through it. So I'm going to hop off, leave you with it, and uh, uh, have a great session. Uh, I'll, I'll jump on at the end. Sounds good. Thank you again, Chuck. So as I mentioned um, uh, briefly, uh, this is a very important topic. Some people call privacy the stepbrother or sister of cyber. Uh, in preparing for this, a lot of conversations in preparing for this webinar, uh, people in the know, in the industry, you know, still trying to figure out how to describe the relationship between cybersecurity and privacy. And so uh, we've actually been talking about it for 10 plus years. We knew that as buildings became more instrumented, uh, you know, networks, IoT devices, smart automation systems, security cameras, lights, access control, that the data collection um, from all these devices, as well as the devices you carry all day long, your phone and, and watches and other devices, that at some point um, we were going to have to address this issue. And so we felt it was time, uh, as Chuck had mentioned, to include this within the cyber uh, series and I think after today's webinar, um, you're going to understand just what's at stake, uh, hopefully what your responsibility is within this ecosystem, whether it be building owner, property manager, service provider, manufacturer, everybody's got a role in this. Uh, and I think you're gonna find this conversation very, very interesting. So before we uh, bring on the panelists, I'd like to uh, introduce a short video, a little funny, a little scary at the same time, and uh, we're gonna use it as a reference point uh, uh, during the conversation. So let's bring up that video and I'll be right back. Oh, hi, Carmel. Uh, uh, hot chocolate. What's the name? Uh, Joel. What was the name? Alex. Alex. Thank there you go, Johnny. Cheers. If you like our Facebook page, we give you a free hot drink and a free pastry. We have a new like for Damien. We have a new like for Damien. Hey, Carla, are you standing by? Standing by. Hi there, can I help? Yeah, I just uh, liked your Facebook page. Okay, I'll search Facebook now. I'm searching Google. I have a phone number. I've got his email address. Okay, Carly, are you ready for information on Damien? Yeah, yep, I am. Mother's maiden name is He banks with Carly, this is the girl coming in now with the blue scarf. What's her name? Nicholas. 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 His date of birth, 7th May. She lives at 38A. Just be a couple of seconds. Two children, a eight, eight, four, eight, 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 Damien, age 26 and a fitness instructor. How do you know that? Where did you go to UCL? Martin went to South Thames College, assistant psychologist at Great Ormond Street. How did you know? I don't even understand. Huh? You know I'm a Christian as well. Oh, yeah, we know everything about you, Martin. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Anna, from Russia. All right, so you know, in, in some senses, that was um, had a little comedy um, associated with it, and actually, what you just witnessed there is dated already. And um, to, I want to take you into the future a little bit uh, to for you to understand what the end game may look like. Um, we're going to introduce into this webinar a paper written on uh, surveillance in the Chinese social credit scoring system. Um, I'm not sure. How many people are aware of this? 
that basically it's been in play or in, in the making for about five years now, right around the 2014, 2015 is when they, they started this. The whole idea was to interconnect various systems within the Chinese tech architecture, starting with the communications layer with a company like Huawei, <clears throat> and then laying over the apps and the data with companies such as Tencent, Alibaba, PicVision with 600 million cameras, and now China uh, is known as the most um, uh, out there and, and progressive uh, and advanced in, in the integration, what we'll call societal automation. And uh, it was interesting that it was supposed to be released in 2020, and that was the year uh, that the uh, pandemic started. And uh, anybody who followed the pandemic early days over there, they initiated a contact tracing-based QR code system which basically started out green if you were healthy and, and through basically exposure to other folks within the contract tracing distances, your QR code could go from green to yellow to red and red meant you couldn't leave your, your apartment. Uh, another kind of high level, you know, anecdotal description of what that could mean is you're out for dinner with your friends, you have a couple too many glasses of wine, your social credit score goes down and you attempt to go to a movie an hour later and you're denied because your social credit score does not meet um, the, um, the criteria. Some may think that sounds like a black mirror episode. Um, it is, but uh, a little bit of <clears throat> homework into the social credit scoring system that's being developed in China will give you an idea of where the privacy conversation ends. Uh, we actually have a document here for you today that will be listed and um, we will um, uh, love to hear your feedback. Uh, it's, it's a topic that's starting to make the press in the next six, nine, 12 months. You're going to hear much more about it. And, uh, and we figured it was time for us to start the conversation because much of the conversations, uh, many of the conversations, the data transfer that goes on in this world takes place in buildings. And there's a certain level of awareness and responsibility that building owners, managers, service providers um, are going to need to have. So with that, I would like to bring in our panelists. Uh, we got a great crew uh, to talk uh, today. Uh, Farooz Ali Khan, the Managing Director, IT Divco West Services. Sean Nealon, VP Cyber and Info Security for Brookfield Properties. And Aaron Altier, Director of Technology Initiative for Car Properties. We could not have a better panel um, to discuss this. And guys, good to see you. Um, we've, we spent uh, quite a bit of time preparing for this because this is not a topic that, you know, you, you can go to your um, your local website and do a search and and get all the answers. And I really want to say thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time, not just to be on this webinar, but all the prep time and all the you know the intellectual property that came from your brain um, that it took to even formulate some of the questions. And I'll and I'll preface uh, this conversation with we're probably going to create more questions than we have answers. Uh, because we're in the early stages of this. And, and I think as the audience sees where this conversation goes, as Chuck alluded to, I'd be taking some notes um, because this one is not going away. It's going to get big real quick. And anybody who has their hands on a keyboard or responsible for anything with some silicon in it uh, is going to have to deal with this topic. And, and whether you're a hardware communications person, whether you're an operating platform, an application, data governance, it's going to hit everybody. Uh, most of the people in the IT world are, are about to spend a lot more time with lawyers inside their companies talking about these issues, uh, making sure that they're crossing T's and dotting I's. So 
guys with that let's start aaron we'll go left to right um why don't you tell us a little bit about you not you know your position in the company but also maybe a little bit of backward um history on on your your skills uh and then finally you know why you wanted to participate in this conversation and, and the kinds of experiences you may have maybe two three minutes each of you and then we'll get right into the questions Sure. So uh, it's nice to meet everybody. Aaron Altshire with Car Properties. Um, so Car is based in Washington, D.C. We're five and a half million square feet, primarily of office um, throughout the D.C. area, Boston and uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, we're an owner, operator, developer. Uh, and we you know, try to lead the industry with our technology efforts uh, and implementing tech, bringing in um, new data to analyze has been you know, a priority for us for the last couple of years. And um, that's really been the impetus of my role. Uh, I lead our technology initiatives and um, more largely our data initiatives, our analytics initiatives, and a large number of applications that our, our customers, our tenant customers use. Um, so I think my perspective today um, and what I'm, I'm really excited to talk about is um, really the experience that we've had rolling out uh, customer-facing applications uh, technology that collects data, but doing it in a way that's been responsible, that's been well received by our customers, but also has value add for the company. And just you know, talking internally, um, you know, fellow members of the team here, um, it's really a balancing act of being able to successfully deploy a technology that's adopted um, to collect enough data where it's valuable, yet to do it in a permissible way by the end user where they're comfortable and there's trust and transparency there. So um, I don't come from a cybersecurity background, I'm more on the application side. So I think I can contribute to the conversation from just on the, the product delivery, the product adoption by the customers um, on what sort of changes that we've seen over, over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I, and I was pretty impressed the other day when we were chatting and as we were chatting, you were diving into your network and telling me some things that were going on in your lobby <clears throat> because the technology gives you the capability to do that. We're going to dive into that a little bit, uh, certainly anonymize any you know specific individuals. But I think it's important for people to understand just how capable some of this new technology is. So thank you for that, Aaron. Farouz. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Farouz Ali Khan. I work for Divco West. Uh, we have 17 sites throughout the U.S., all tech hub sites. Um, and so um, I help manage the security and the infrastructure side for the company um, to protect and obviously with cybersecurity and privacy. Um, recently just got my, uh, my master's in cybersecurity because I'm so interested in this field. And also an added benefit was now I get to see and hear and learn from even the next generation of talent that's about to hit the cybersecurity world. Um, and help protect this environment. So, um, but in reality, we're, um, I'm more of an, uh, I help out on the corporate IT security side, but also I'm an advisor for our properties and our building uh, management staff to help ensure that we're performing assessments and understanding um, what's going inside of our buildings to help protect our tenants, our guests, um, and our employees from a, a cyber and a privacy perspective. Um, Big job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was reading some articles um, in preparation for some other conversations on cyber that 600, I've heard the number range from 600,000 to over a million cybersecurity jobs open uh, with nobody yeah. to fill them. Is that an accurate? 
I, I where, where, what I'm reading is that it's two by two million by 2025 is where it's going to be because it's just so much going on out there and cybersecurity covers so a wide range um, that that you know the talent's just not there yet. Right. Yeah, uh, Microsoft just announced an initiative where they're funding, I believe, 170 schools uh, to to assist in in bringing up uh, those cybersecurity specialists that we so desperately need. Sean, some background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Sean Nealon. I'm the uh, senior vice president and global head of cyber information um, security for Brookfield Properties. Um, under my remit, um, I oversee IT security, OT security, and data privacy from the IT perspective. Um, for those who don't know Brookfield, we're um, a subsidiary of BAM, Brookfield Asset Management. We have, uh, BAM's a $660 billion asset manager, of which about $275 billion of those assets are in properties. And we operate uh, roughly 70 companies in 16 countries. Um, and, you know, there's a huge focus on both cybersecurity and privacy um, in everything that we're doing and making sure that we're uh, protecting, you know, our client data, our customer data, the public's data. Um, and, you know, because Brookfield is, is in all areas of, of um, real estate, you know, we also have student housing, we have senior living, we have obviously office, multifamily, uh, single family rentals, et cetera. So there's just a, a, a huge variety of data um, that, we, that we gather and collect and, and use uh, in the course of business and trying to make sure that we're protecting it appropriately and, and staying in line with all of the various laws that are popping up everywhere right now. So. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. So, Sean, your perspective is gonna be particularly interesting for two or three reasons. Number one, the size of Brookfield, right? I mean, the sheer size of the portfolio and the variety of the portfolio. Two, your international exposure, because you've got you know assets all over the world, you're seeing privacy addressed a little differently, you know, every place you go. And then third, because of your size, the fact that you are you know the CISO. You've got a team, you've got resources because of your side. A lot of people, you know, folks in the real estate industry don't have the luxury of the resources that you do. And so we're going to kind of look to you as the, the you know, person with hopefully some of the answers that, that maybe the smaller organizations without that resource, ben, you know, the resources on the bench uh, just don't have. Right. So I really appreciate all of you being here. And uh, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. So, so before we start digging into the meat of the questions, I just want to bring up some examples of, of some privacy concerns, uh, you know, maybe some issues, uh, but just some questions we should start asking. I'm going to read through a list, and then uh, I'm going to like you guys to comment on them, and then uh, we're going to get into the rest of our questions. So, in as I mentioned earlier, we've been talking about privacy. Saw this one coming for about 10 years. Um, or, uh, we've been writing about them on our new weekly news brief, which um, will be updated. Uh, we had to turn some of our older articles off. That's going to be coming back on. So in a week or so, you'll be able to just go back up and type in privacy and see our first conversation. I believe it was about 2012 on cyber on privacy inside buildings. So uh, last few years, this is what we've we've seen. Facebook, you know, everybody's used to it. You do a Google search, you're on Facebook, Instagram. Within seconds now, those searches pop up. You know. As technologists, we can kind of figure out how they do that, but it's getting more complicated, more sophisticated, more comprehensive. I'm impressed with the speed uh, that, that which this takes place. And then, you know, that's it's all in uh, alignment with cookies. We all know the value cookies play, but we also know the, the problem that cookies present. 
And there's days I wake up and say, why isn't our government taking a more active role in understanding privacy as it relates to cookies, as far as being able to remove them, notifications, so on and so forth. A couple of years back, we heard the issue of the Google Nest with an embedded microphone. Was not in the marketing spec, wasn't even in the technical spec, I believe. Uh, and, uh, and, and so who likes the idea of installing a thermostat in your house with a microphone you didn't know about? There was also stories five plus years ago about uh, television screen, LED screen um, uh, production or uh, companies, manufacturers, then embedded cameras inside that screen. So, and their, their reasoning was we wanted to view the reaction of the people watching, you know, to, to a particular program. And that's all well and good if you've got people opting in and aware, but you can't just put cameras and televisions and not tell people. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, a Apple uh, has announced the uh, help alert, the satellite help alert. Wonderful idea. They call it Lifeline, you know, everywhere you go. Problem is that satellite connection means constant communications and, and they'll have access to data never before had. And, and what goes beyond the satellite help alert system, we need to know and we need to keep an eye on. Uber, a couple years back, GPS tracking after they left the car, wanted to follow you home, you know, see where you were. It, the reasoning was we wanted to know your habits. So when you, um, uh, you know, woke up in the morning, there was enough Uber cars in that neighborhood because you've established a pattern. Who hasn't had, you know, your phone tell you, oh, looks like it's time to go home. Here's, you know, here's the map. Uh, Uber was also accused of microphones and videoing inside cars without permission, okay? So just because we have the technology doesn't mean we should use it. And again, it was all about customer experience and customer enhancement. OnStar, uh, General Motors just announced it's going to be standard equipment in most of their cars, uh, not really able to turn it off. Right now, it's GPS, self, uh, GPS location, seatbelts, braking. Uh, other other IoT devices in that car. And then, of course, the question begs, audio. You know, do they turn the microphone on uh, whenever they want to? I don't think so, but can they? Yes. And so what does that mean for privacy inside your car? Just like we're going to be talking about buildings. What does that mean about privacy inside? You know, you're on that, you're on that uh, family vacation. You're ranting about that ant that everybody hates. You know, do you, do you ever want to risk that conversation getting out? I'm, I'm adding a little humor to lighten it up, but you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, app, how many of you in the last year have, have wondered, I didn't type in anything in the search, and yet things are still coming up on my social feeds. You know, what, what piece of equipment did I have near me? What was my microphone? I encourage anybody listening, if you got an iPhone, settings, privacy, microphone, and if you see a whole bunch of green buttons, that means you've inadvertently given access to the microphone. You've given them the right to turn on your microphone whenever they want. Um, and, and when I show even tech people who aren't aware of that, they, their eyes bulge out and I just see them start shutting off the microphone. Um, Sofi, um, Ian, why don't you bring it up if you can, uh, if it's handy, if it's not, that's okay. But, you know, recently found out that Sofi, and this has been going on for about five years at football games, high resolution photos taken intermittently. I think the first one done was at a Super Bowl four or five years ago, and you know they pulled five guys out of there, uh, arresting them because they cross-referenced the photos in that database with um, uh, the FBI uh, you know, photo database. Good, that's all good, right? We don't like criminals, but the question is, you know, what do we do? Um, what what else do we do with those photos? So this is taken at every game, and the resolution's incredible. So. You know, they're able to go in and grab you at your seat and, and, and take your face and instantly apply it against the database. 
Uh, and, and then if you juxtapose all of these things with what I said earlier about the Chinese social credit scoring system and surveillance state, they don't have democracy. They don't have debate. They don't have webinars like this. They say do it and, and they do it. Uh, and then finally, but not la last but not least, um, security cameras. Every single person on this panel has, has to deal with security panels or uh, security cameras. Uh, it, it was, you know, questioned years ago that Hikvision out of China had the capacity to send those feeds out of that camera back to China. Uh, the federal government banned them. A lot of property owners are how, you know, how do you deal with, you know, replacing hundreds, if not thousands of cameras. Um, so it's all over. And, and that, that, so and I, guys, it didn't take me that long to put that list together. So let's, let's start with Aaron. Aaron, am I crazy? Is it my imagination? And, and where are we? Not yet in the building conversation. We're not there yet, but where are we in the general privacy discussion uh, in, in the United States or, or the, or the West, if you will? Okay, so I first have to answer the question, Jim, no, you're not crazy. Um, Thank you. <laughs> despite what, yeah, despite what others might say, no, you're not. Um, and, you know, the takeaway for, from me, for me is that um, everybody is having this conversation and people are getting more educated. And it's one of these conversations that if you don't get your arms around it, if you don't contain it, it's a black hole. You can go down this hole, it can accelerate and it can get worse and worse. So, from a you know from a real estate operator's perspective or anyone that's managing an organization um you have to expect that your end users your customers are also getting the same information as we are they are getting more educated they are seeing the news feeds so the responsible approach is to get out in front i mean if you think about the new types of data that was being collected throughout covid um you know we were taking you know temperature scans we were having um, facial recognition for access control. All of these these new technologies that came out um, that was that was met with appreciation, but also some resistance on um, on what brands were using. It was met with what data is being collected. And if we hadn't been prepared to answer those questions, you know, authentically and answer them in a in an appropriate manner. Um, those initiatives could have failed or there, there could have even been blowback. So for me, the takeaway is um, data privacy is uh, in one way eroding, but for people that manage organizational data, you need to get out in front and expect the end user is going to be as smart or maybe even smarter than you. So you got to be prepared um, and be part of the conversation. And some people have accused the building industry of being pretty stoic, pretty conservative, pretty slow moving. But when all of your tenants employees are walking through those doors they're carrying devices that are a thousand times more powerful than sent the first you know people to the moon okay so to your point the consumer is very educated and is experiencing these things on a daily basis and i think the number is about 65 70 percent of all communications takes place while somebody is in a building right so so they build all these outdoor networks for cell phones but the reality is most of the communications takes place inside of an office building, inside of a mall, inside of a stadium, inside of a home, right? And so to your point, as a building owner, um, they've got to, we've got to stay out in front of this. So, Baruz, pile on, add on to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree 100%. We're, we're constantly trying to keep ahead of it, like you said, from an awareness perspective and training to our users. Um, and also even the staff that we have, right? We're, we're continually um, having them do tabletop exercises and 
specialized trainings to understand that 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 they have to uh, ensure that there's security controls around um, around these privacy concerns that we get from our tenants, our our uh, our guests, our visitors, even our employees, and and so we're you know we're periodically giving out those that information through um, um, you know one on ones with the various departments, especially the property management staff, the um, and, and including all of of the the engineers and whatnot, so they can now ask these questions of their vendors, right? And then source them up to us um, because we, you know, they're they're they have a lot of questions around. Well, if we get this connected device to the network, I just want to be able to access it from anywhere, and and we have to educate right. them that yes, we we understand you want to access it, but there are controls, and we got to protect the data that it is collecting and ask the question through contracts or through co review of contracts. And other things to ensure that they are paying attention, and again, utilizing us as a resource to help them understand this because it is increasing, right? Every day, any lighting comes in, and it's got a, its own little wireless network, right? And exactly. you ask the question about it, and they're like, "Well, we just want to make sure that we can we can um, manage those 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 resources efficiently, right? And obviously, um, lessen the work from the engineer's perspective." But also there's that 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 concern of what is it tracking, what what is it collecting, and where is that data being stored? Right, and and, and we're going to present a scenario at the end of the webinar that you know talks about the simple installation of a light ballast in a boardroom, and and then I'm going to challenge you guys to tell me who's liable, but we'll we'll save that for later. Um, just to to touch on that supply chain issue a little bit, though, I mean. Uh, when you look at a building, you know, you put in the base building network and then the hundreds, thousands, millions, you know, of IP addresses at some point that you could have with every piece of electrical, mechanical equipment attached to that network, hundreds of vendors, okay, maybe thousands. So what do you do to make sure that nobody can, you know, take a shortcut through an unprotected piece of equipment and, and land up where it shouldn't be? So in our case, we outsource a lot of the um, the building management and monitoring and the security of those network, um, the, the core network to the building to um, our vendors, right? Our our, our, uh, our security vendors along with our networking vendors and they control that environment. And we educate again, our property management staff that when you get a request to have something come in or, or have it as an IP connected device, that it, the communication again goes to uh, that vendor, um, and then we're you know we're brought up to speed of what what's going to happen to the network. Are they going to create a separate VLAN for that for that specific device and, and whatnot? So it continues that 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 conversation that wasn't happening five, six, seven years ago as things were just being plugged in, right? Right. So so Sean, you, you've heard two really good responses, and and by virtue of the size of your portfolio and the companies that that you've got under your direction as far as cybersecurity and privacy goes, how do you manage, um, you know, the, the volume, the size? Uh, I mean, you can't do it manually. I mean, there's, you know, people making decisions every day within your buildings, putting in systems. How do you, how do you manage that from on high? Yeah, so we have, we have a few things that we do. Um, first, we have, uh, we have processes in place, policies in place that say any technologies that are going in have to go, undergo a, a third-party risk management review. 
Um, we also are partnered closely with our legal teams because generally if people do try to avoid IT, they still go to the lawyers to, to get the contract reviewed. Um, and anything that goes to legal review, will go through cyber review. Um, and then, you know, the last stop gap is we put in um, network access control. So, you know, any device that tries to get onto our network won't get on unless we've approved it. So we, we had to layer it in. <clears throat> and the final layer that we're putting in now is um, detective controls. So we're using a platform um, called uh, Armis to um, look at all of our OT devices. So we're aware of every device on the network, what it is, what model, firmware, et cetera, full inventory, full visibility of everything. Um, and then is we have auto syncing. It goes, finds it on its own. Yeah, so it's it's actually passive. Um, it doesn't search, which is important because that's one of the things that we 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 did use active searching tools, and it would actually break things. Um, it uses passive network traffic, so it, it monitors all traffic going through your network. And just from looking at the network traffic patterns, it can determine um, over a million types of devices, um, and exactly not just the device, but it'll tell you, you know, this is a security, this is an access security camera model, you know, PTZ, whatever running firmware version this, um, connected to this port and this switch on this VLAN, you know, it's it's very detailed. And so we use that as How our about does it does it does it go look for exception uh, exceptions and then is it color coded to the point when you know you look at all your devices in green, everything is good. Yellow you got some concerns and red you got to pay attention. Does it give you yeah. that type of reporting? It does based on you know vulnerabilities, based on firmware versions, based on like default credentials. Um, whether or not the traffic is being encrypted, there, there are all sorts of measures that it has to, to risk rank the devices. And so we, we use that as our sort of final layer. So we have layers of, you know, first we try to get people to, to approach us before they install it. Then if they try to install it without asking if it should get blocked. And then once it's on the network, we have monitoring in place to know what it is, why it's there and what it's doing. So it's, it's, hmm. it's, a, it's a multi-layered approach to ensure that we're, we're doing the best we can to be secure. And then you know, from a privacy perspective, also, we, we do have a, a, a more privacy people that are just focused on looking at what systems are there, doing data mapping, um, so that way we know in every business what systems contain sensitive data, why do they have that data, what's the business case for using that data, and then building controls around those systems, knowing that they are more sensitive. Yeah, I mean, just a, a wealth of information coming out of, out of Brookfield, again, just based on the size of your portfolio. Um, I, I want to take a step back just to make sure, because it's unclear for a lot of people. 30 seconds or less. We'll start with Peruse. What is the difference between privacy and cybersecurity? Yeah, so so privacy is really about you controlling your own information, right? And, and making sure that you're in control, right? And security is, is really around the process of implementing controls for that data that you want to deem as private, right? And so... Um, that's that's what we're trying to educate and, and make aware to all of our, our staff and um, and anyone who's going to listen, right? So you read it out on on these boards and everywhere, and, and everybody's just really talking about privacy and security and how they go hand in hand, and they're not they're not the same. Um, but but um, I know there's a lot of confusion around it. Aaron, you want to take a step? Sure, totally agree with uh, with Farouz on 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 his comments. But to add, um, you know, privacy is is almost uh, evolving into uh, like your public stance, your public statement on how you respect customer data. And every year, Car publishes like a sustainability report. You say this is what we're doing to be sustainable. Uh, I don't see privacy our privacy policies um, too far behind that. That there could be a day where a company stands behind, they publicize, and they almost promote it as a 
uh, an asset to the company. You know, I, it's funny you should say that because I, I was having a conversation with somebody a couple years back over a beer and, you know, I said, I, I someday can see privacy listed as an amenity, meaning, you know, you come into this building, we've scanned it, you know, we've ripped through the walls, we've checked for wireless frequencies and we can't guarantee it, but here's the protocol we go through to make sure when you enter these doors, you're home and nobody's, you know, and think about that from, you know, at, at, in an apartment building, having a layer in front of that door that provides like a Chinese firewall, if you will, you know, an additional uh, level of protection. Um, I think that does at some point become an amenity. You know? uh, Sean, uh, anything you want to add to that? No, I, I think they made great points. Um, I guess the only thing I would say is, you know, privacy is really about how you're going to use the data or not use the data to honor people's wishes. Cybersecurity is about protecting the data. So no matter what, we're going to try to protect it and we're going to try to ensure that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, that we're responsible with it, that we're getting rid of it, we no longer need it. That's all pri That's all cyber. Privacy right. is, you know, responsibly disclosing what we're doing with the data and getting approval from someone to do it, to do what we are doing prior to using it. So that's, that's really why they go hand in hand. You know, generally what I've always said is if you're doing good cybersecurity, you're doing 80% of the requirements around privacy. And then the other 20% exactly. are really specific around notifications, um, you know, consent and, uh, you know, data subject requests and, and honoring those. And we're going to get in, I, I got a couple other questions before we get there, but we're going to get into some decisions you made on some technology that had some really advanced capabilities that you decided to turn off, right? And so th that those kind of decisions need to be made, you know, systemically throughout the entire organization within a policy so you don't have each building owner, manager making their own decisions, right? And so, We'll get to that in a second. All right, now I, I really want to start digging into the building, okay? So you all know what they are. We walk through the front doors. We've got big, beautiful lobbies or malls, you know, big concourses. So I'm gonna, I want to try to come up with a list of things that we have inside our buildings that are prone to privacy breaches. So I'm just going to name a few. Cameras, facial recognition, microphones, digital displays, contact tracing, location tra uh, tracking, license plate scanning, biometrics, uh, you know, watching and monitoring wireless traffic uh, in within a building. Aaron showed us and talked about some stuff the other day that was pretty powerful. So let's start, Sean, with you this time. Give me, give me, did I get the list complete? What other things, devices inside buildings are prone to be breached that could infringe on somebody's privacy? Yeah, I mean, the, the the I think you covered the vast majority of them. The to be more specific with cameras, thermal cameras are are an even bigger privacy concern because of the nature of how they work. Most people don't realize this, but a lot of thermal commercial thermal cameras that are in use can actually see through clothing. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a whole nother level of of privacy violation when you include that. Um, there's also, you know, you mentioned sort of the the phones that everyone carries. Passive Wi-Fi data is incredibly powerful, and you know, when tied together with other systems you can identify pretty much anyone and get a location to within about three feet. So you can, you can really track them with movements throughout a space. You can know who they are. You can know their demographic information. Uh, people counters are another one that we didn't talk about. You know, people counters are cameras. They don't record generally. It's just doing analytics on the video and then deleting the video. But, you know, it can tell that, you know, a white male between the ages of 35 and 45 walking with his wife assumed because it's a woman between the same age ranges with two children holding bags, it can tell you did they make a purchase or they not make a purchase. Um, it can tell you what stores they walked past, what stores they went into. So you can say, you know, if, if 
someone's complaining while I'm getting no foot traffic, you know, no one's coming to my store. Like if they will actually, you know, 1300 people walked by your store on Saturday, there's no one went in. So it seems like you might need to do something to your storefront to draw people in as opposed to you're in a bad location in the, in the mall or you're in a bad, you know, you're, you're not experiencing it. Um, same thing in, in multifamily, you know, there, there's different things you can do from a visitor management system perspective to personalize things so that if someone's coming in, you have facial recognition and know exactly who the tenant is, you can greet them by name, you can give them, you know, better service, but then you're trading off privacy for convenience. Right. So, so there was a situation about five, seven years ago, major mall owner in Temecula, California, installed by what today's standards would be old technology. It was simply had the capacity to follow mobile phones uh, around to see exactly what you just described. Right. Uh, and it was in its infancy as far as capabilities. So the mall owner put a very small, tiny eight point notice, you know, on the front door of the mall, you know, underneath all the other signs. Nobody read, but somebody got wind of it and made a big deal. And it, it was a little bit of a blemish on, on that mall for a while saying, hey, you were putting in surveillance technologies that you didn't tell us about. Right. Um, so in your experience, are your occupants aware of the things that you're doing? Do you post them? Do you let them know uh, so so they have the ability to make those decisions? Yeah, so I should clarify. I'm not saying we're doing all of those in Brookfield. We do, our privacy stance is fairly strong and we wanna make sure that we're not violating anyone's uh, privacy. So any sort of tracking we do is always the identify data, meaning I don't know who you are. I can just tell that people walked past. I can't tell that it's Jim Young. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's very much a, a sanitized information. Um, but you know, we do disclose everything we track. It's in our privacy notice on our website. Um, it's in, if you go to the mall management office in a mall, if you go to the management office at an office and you go to the management office at a, uh, a, a multifamily building, it, it, we have a clear sign posting exactly what we capture, why we're using it, what it is. Wow. So we do make sure it's there. The problem is most people don't go to a, a management office when they right. go to those buildings. So, you know, but that's still are, pretty good that you've got that throughout the organization, given your size. How long ago did you start putting that in place? 2019, um, and it's it's only in in certain jurisdictions where it's required. So it's not it's not to say everywhere. We have been trying to be better about being proactive and putting it in more locations. But we do make sure that we're following compliance with with local like, local re, um, legislation that we need to be. In, in and we're going to get to that in a couple minutes. The specifically California. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. assuming it's harder to to meet requirements in California than any place else. It, absolutely. Okay, and we'll get into the details of GDPR and CCPA in a second. Aaron, you know, on this whole, of, of all the things that, you know, we listed that can go inside of a box, a building, you you were discussing, and I was aware at a high level, concept level, but when you went into the detail um, of, of what you can see, uh, it, it really started to raise some flags like, oh, wow, this stuff is even better than it used to be. Can you give uh, the attendees just a little overview of, of the capacity, not the, and not that you use it, but of your ability to see what's going on in your wireless networks inside of a building? Sure. So, um, yeah, we're talking about our uh, the tool that we use for converged networks uh, throughout our properties and gives us the you know ability to see traffic through endpoints and basically manage networks uh, very quickly. Um, and in you know very just a couple um, couple clicks of a mouse, you can really dive deeply into a particular network, see what the most popular applications are, and see which devices are consuming data through those applications. Uh, and, you know, we were sort of reading through the device names that were, you know, populating on the portal, um, many of which are, you know, names of people and people that have named their personal devices, their own name, 
Um, and, you know, right associated with that device is the traffic and application use, um, you know, connected to it. So uh, I think there's, you know, as a consumer, you have to assume if somebody's providing me a free service and somebody can come off the street as a visitor, use our network, you have to assume that when you use somebody's network that there is, you know, data and traffic that is, that is tracked. Um, but then if we talk about responsibility, then it's, you know, CAR, the building owner's responsibility to do right by that data. Uh, and it's, you know, it's doing the right thing, even if nobody's looking, uh, even if, you know, uh, nobody's asking you to do this. But um, it's, you know, looking at the data anonymously and um, just, you know, proceeding down the path in the right way. Right. So yeah. when we were chatting, you said to be specific, you can see a mobile phone in your lobby. You know that it's looking at YouTube. Can you tell what YouTube it's watching? No, fortunately not. Good. Yeah. Well, yeah. from a marketing standpoint, I'm saying, oh, wow, if I knew that, then I could throw some ad on the screen, you know, five feet in front, which I wouldn't want to do. But 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 you can't. You, I think you shared with us. You could tell that, you know, the largest application on your network was YouTube. Correct. Right. Other Jim, than browser, other than the general web browser. Web yeah, browser. and Jim, that's where it comes into, right? We have staff, we have vendors, and it, it really comes around the ethical aspects of what we see. The privacy aspect has an ethical uh, piece of that. And, and we're relying on various levels of skill sets to understand that, that what is ethical um, from a company perspective, from a an end user, an employee, a um, even a personal perspective, are we trusting the, the, the groups or the vendors that are collecting this data and, un, and seeing that, hey, it's my iPhone, I, I went to YouTube, and are they making the correct ethical decision based on it? Or if I'm visiting a website that's not supposed, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about some of those not so savory websites, Ethically, you see it. What are you, you know, then you, how do you educate your staff to understand, do I report this or do I not? Right. Well, just this morning, the, the, the CEO of Microsoft in an article said, don't spy on your employees working from home. I mean, he very well knows that they can log, you know, activity on a keyboard anywhere around the world. Right. And you can throw that into an algorithm that ranks people touching the most keys and mouses versus somebody who's not, then you can make the assumption they're not working, right? And so he knows the power, but in a, in a very strong statement, literally this morning or yesterday, said, don't do it, right? And so there's always the potential for a rogue employee. I remember a few years back in San Diego, we had a, uh, a IT director of a, a school district who, and this was actually probably longer, it was like eight years ago, um, who literally took advantage of his capacity to go into the kids' bedrooms and turn on cameras. Okay, and and then the ultimate excuse was we wanted to see if they were studying. It's like no, you did, you know. So so you have a rogue employee in any of your organizations that gets bored and wants to have fun. Aaron, what damage could a rogue employee do uh, with the tools that you've got at your disposal? Uh, I mean, it certainly could violate some privacy, you know, some privacy policies that we have in place. But um, you know, there's there's enough coverage throughout the team and the company that um, we're, you know. Um, we're not immune to it, but I think something like that happening was highly unlikely at our organization. Right. 
Well, and that, that, that goes to the hiring process and setting a, a, a code of standard, right? And, and actually having these conversations with your team, I think are important, right? That just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And I think it's also setting up your 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 permissions to be least privileged. You know, we we have similar what Aaron described as far as wireless data, passive Wi-Fi data. Um, you know, we have similar systems that can do the same thing. What we've actually done is set it up so that the passive Wi-Fi data is extremely limited who can access it. So, um, you know, in order to get to it, a you need to have an admin account. B you have to be one of three people to be able to get to it. And um, you know, we we do audit access to that information to make sure that no one's using it or abusing it to to do something um, inappropriate. So I, I think a lot of it ties to just putting in the right controls. And, you know, yes, we have policies. Yes, we train our people on what's the right thing to do, but also verifying to make sure that people aren't going to the to an uncomfortable level with what they have access to. I remember a while back I was having lunch with a friend of mine, Larry Smarr, literally one of the guys who invented the Internet both at a hardware level, his, uh, he was one of the uh, University of Illinois first communications. I think it was with Stanford. He was involved in that project. And he was, he was advisor to, um, the guy who started, um, not IE, what was the other browser Netscape? Um, so, so these guys fingers all over the internet, pretty smart guy. And we were having lunch and, and, and he said, um, you know, once Wi-Fi came and privacy was lost, what did he mean by that? Anybody want to take, I mean, is it, is it e so that easy for somebody to hack into that network and do what they want? It's not that it's so easy. It's that it's really a wireless security was pretty terrible in the beginning. So if you look at like weapon, web encryption, which you could break in seconds and, 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 and man in the middle of someone's traffic was always an issue. Um, rogue access points, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many people have heard of like Wi-Fi pineapples, um, which you can use to create mirrored networks and, and capture traffic. Um, and then, you know, passive Wi-Fi, you know, if you don't turn your wireless off, your phone is always beaconing out. So wherever you're walking, people can tell you're there. Like any, any access point is going to know that your phone was in that area and can track you. And with the number of access points that exist in our world, you're, you're pinging all the time. And so, you know, it, there have been some privacy controls put in place where they rotate Mac IDs on a regular basis to at least make it more randomized. But even that, there, there's other tools you can use to reverse it and, and find people. So, you know, it's, it's very much a, 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 a problem. The other one is Bluetooth. Most people leave Bluetooth on because uh, they use Bluetooth headsets like I am right now, or, you know, they're going to use, you know, they have their Apple watch and that's Bluetooth, or they have whatever else in the Bluetooth, their car is Bluetooth. Um, Bluetooth beacons also. So you, you know, Bluetooth is beaconing, Wi-Fi is beaconing all the time on your phone. So no matter where you're going, we're seeing it. And if you look at products that do sort of the, that, that sniffing or detection, we use it all the time to, to find rogue devices. We use it for security, valid security purposes, these devices, but we capture everything. So we're seeing anything that's going through, we're seeing anything that you know comes up. I remember reading an article from a security researcher a few years ago where um, he went into the, the London underground and you know just set up a Wi-Fi pineapple for a day to prove to see like what would happen. And he just created, you know, he, a, a, like a, I think it was a Starbucks Wi-Fi or whatever, you know, common free public Wi-Fi. And thousands of people going through that station connected to it, started sending traffic through it, and most of it was unencrypted, and he could see it. And he, you know, he didn't share any of the data; he deleted it afterwards. It was just for research it was purposes. Like to make a point. Yeah. Exactly, but it was to say, you know, I have this many people's Facebook account login information. I have this many people's, you know, I, I, this is how much information I can tell you about the people who walk through that train station that day. And it's, right. it's mind-boggling to see the amount of data you leak just by having free public Wi-Fi, just by leaving your Wi-Fi turned on. I, I think I sniff a demonstration coming up for real common IBCon, Sean. I think, I mean, we all know it, okay? But when we see it, 
in action and you see that person logging onto Facebook with the ability to see their password, I just think it brings people you know, just to the point of saying, I know it happens, I've been aware of it forever, but when you see it, it it, it stands out and says, this is not right. You know, and I, I remember when Blue BLE, Bluetooth Low Energy, started making some steam a few years back and I downloaded uh, for free a BLE um, uh, uh, app on my iPad, went on an airplane, turned it on, unbelievable. I could see everybody's earbuds and I mean, and I'm like, and I'm literally like, and I'm not a hacker, I don't have those skills, but I'm like clicking on these things almost as if I was logging in and could I start talking into that earbud, you know, for, you know, making, you know, having some fun with that person, like I'm watching, you know, I mean, what, can somebody with good skills do that kind of stuff? In, 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 the, in, in the Bluetooth or BLE environment, is that possible? Yeah, there was yeah. another article published a few years ago of uh, in New York City, someone did that, like they just stood at a street corner and turned one of those on. And started like accessing people's devices, take, like, jumping into people's conversations. Like even taxis that were driving past, you stop at the light. They could temporarily like join in the conversation and, and interject. And it was freaking people out because this person was doing it. it was, again, it was a security researcher not trying to steal anything, but no. any, anything so, is possible when you don't have good technologies you know, set yeah, up. Yeah, Jim, just Comcast Wi-Fi, right? You you sign up for Comcast Wi-Fi and you you're all of a sudden you're traveling through different cities and you're connecting to Comcast Wi-Fi. So Comcast is already doing it on their base routers and their modems that are going into people's homes to make it easier, right, for people that um, right. you sign up for their service. Then you can go to a different city and, and connect to that Wi-Fi. So it's your phones are automatically connecting to these this Comcast Wi-Fi throughout the country wherever they're, they're these modems are at, right? So that's another thing you got to be concerned about. You know, Jim, in, in the, go ahead there. I'm sorry. Um, this reminded me of, um, you know, one of the, the tools that we rolled out, our, our car mobile app um, with access control that we had to face some of these challenges. Um, so just a little bit like history on the product. It's a tenant amenity app. We released it to all of our, our customers uh, about a year and a half ago. We embedded access control. So access control now through the phone uses BLE. It also uses background location. So we had an existing product and we roll this access control piece into it and it uses these new services. And we thought, all right, great, this is all well and good, but um, then you're met with you know, questions, concerns from the, from the user population that our you know, IT and marketing teams had to address. So we had to update our privacy policies. We had to get people to consent to the privacy policies. And then also on the application side, and this was key. It was the like transparency and control over what you want to share. So I think from you know an applications developer, it is critical that you give the you know the keys basically to the end user. If they don't want to you know use Bluetooth on this particular app, they have the ability to turn it off. If they don't want to use location uh, where it's always running in the background, then you can turn it off. Uh, and I think that's going to develop into a standard moving forward is, is giving the end user the control of what they want to share and on demand turn it so on. So just to be clear, though, just to be clear, to, to make that access control app work, you had to deploy you know, GPS technology, I'm assuming, that you could, in, in essence, follow the people home after they left work. Um, the technology is reading your location, and there's a sensible reason why you don't want Bluetooth running all the time, which to right. uh, Sean's point, you know, you, it's, you know, making connections outside of the phone at, at all times, it's pulsing. So you really only want to run that BLE service when you're within the geofence of the building uh, for access control. So 
you leave the geoperimeter, that gets turned off. However, the system needs to know when to turn it back on when you arrive at work. So something has to be, you know, tracking location in the background. And in order for it to work with the phone locked, with the app in the background, it has to be set to location always, you know, always being able to be pinged. Um, now, we state very clearly that we don't see any of the location data. We don't use the location data. Our access control uh, provided company doesn't, doesn't access it, doesn't use it. Uh, but still, you have to provide control to the people. You have to uh, be transparent about what you're what do, doing. What do we do? What do we do given the fact that most people are either technically illiterate, too lazy, or unwilling to read 30 page service agreements, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm wonky enough that I read or have read the Facebook terms of service, okay, uh, and that's why I took it off my phone five years ago, okay, because they were saying things about microphones and cameras that I just didn't like, right? But the average person doesn't take the time to read, and if you think about all the environments where this could happen inside the mall, inside the office building, how how do we give them more control or more awareness without making it too burdensome? Well, one thing that is is taking some of the burden off of off of us, the a application side, is the platforms are now telling users when services are running in the background. You probably have seen a prompt on your phone that says, "Hey, this app has been using your location uh, for the last 30 days. This is where it's been used. Do you want to continue down that path?" And you have the ability to, you know, to say yes or no. Um, now that's good and bad because now the user's more educated. And if you didn't inform them upfront on what's going on, now maybe they're upset. Um, but, you know, I think other services are going to be, you know, percolating this information to the top. But, but to your point, Jim, I think a lot of people don't care. Um, you know, I have friends I've talked to about this and I'm like, you know, there's so much data being collected about you. And they're like, my life's not that interesting. If they want the data, they can have it. I don't care. So until they do. It, it, well, that's exactly right. You know, it's it's it, once something happens and they feel violated, now they care very much. And they're going to that gonna video in the beginning. It. Right. The coffee shop that knew everything. Yep. Did you see those people's faces walking out? Yep. You know, they, they, like I said, we all know what's going on. And those of us who are technical, we know a little bit more. But until it happens to you, you know, you, and, and, you know, in a deliberate way, I mean, we all get ads where everybody's kind of okay with that. I'm not. I still I get annoyed that I do a Google search and it shows up on social. Um, but, but does that ever change or do we quietly get lulled into a sense of convenience and and safety. I think if you can creep people out enough, like it helps <laughs> as funny as that sounds. The one I always use is um, a website called True People Search. Um, True People Search is a free service. You can go in, you can put anyone's name and city in and they'll come up. So, you know, Jim, I, I know you live in California, I don't remember where, but I could put in Jim Young, California. I may not find you because there's probably a lot of Jim Youngs in California. Are, yeah. But, but you know, if, if you put in, you know, uh, information, you can usually, if you know enough about somebody, you can usually find them at True People Search. And What's that called? True you know, People that, Search? True people search, truepeoplesearch.com. And you can ask, you can ask to have your data removed. But, um, you know, that's just one of the 110 websites that do this. But, you know, true people search is free. You can go and put anyone's name and city, and it will usually come up. You can usually find them pretty easily. And, you know, once I've done that, I now know your home phone number. I know your address. I know your previous addresses. I know your spouses, your spouse. I know your kids. I know your parents. I know, and that's just like free information they give you. You can actually pay and get more information after that. Um, you can get criminal histories, you can get everything. Like it's, it's, a, it's extremely violating to see. And so whenever I, I, I do presentations and talk about this, I'll usually ask for a volunteer and, you know, go in and say like, hey, you know, uh, can I pull you up? 
and you know we'll go through and we'll do it and, and, and show it off and people are like oh my god like i can't believe that much information is about me it's just available and there are services you can buy too to, to get that information scrubbed so i use one of those services to get my information scrubbed on a, on a monthly basis off of the internet that's my whole family you know, I, yeah. I pay well my computer is named bob whatever. smith my computer's named bob smith you know, to, to your early, earlier point with Aaron, when yep. I'm in your lobby, you'll see Bob Smith, not Jim Young, because I don't name it, you know, my name. Um, I've gone offline with, you know, important bank accounts are all offline now, require me to go into the bank. I mean, you got to either take, and you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. It just takes a little bit of awareness and people like Sean to scare you, you know, to you say, wow, th this, this is real. And, and sometimes people know it's real, but until they see it, they don't do anything. Um, I got I, I, some more questions. I want to. I mean, 90 minutes. We're gonna fill it. Um, I still got some some big questions. Um, I'll go to Farouz. Somebody comes into your lobby, sets up a pineapple, and starts taking occupants' information and causing some havoc. Are you liable? Is the building owner liable? Um, that, that, that's a loaded question, right, Jim? I mean, it, setting up a pineapple, they got access into our building. And so they're, the question is who most tenant, most people will want to go after the one with the deepest pocket. So they'll try and go after the owner, right? And, and, and the, and the possibly the vendor if it, if they were, but in this case, if it was a pineapple, um, they would probably go after the, the building owner because they let allowed the um, individual inside of the building to and then allowed that that device to continue collecting um, and having others um, access that device right you have physical security you've got camera security to identify if that user um, is just sitting there squatting to 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 have a device along with from a, a network perspective right you're you're looking for rogue um, a, you know ap's out there and if something's showing up as a rogue inside your building that's similar or whatever, then you're, you're, you're obviously notified. Aaron, how fast would you know somebody set up a pineapple in your lobby? Um, I would, um, well, if it's connecting to the network, I mean, and our, uh, you know, network intrusion, network detection system is running. No, it's not connecting to your network. It's, it's sitting there as its own network, trying to get your occupants to log on to it. It's not on your network. Yeah, it's, well, you get into a question of then physical security of the building. And I mean, technically you're walking into a private space. Uh, we have guarded lobbies um, and we have, you know, CCTV cameras. So, you know, hopefully that it, you know, that limits the, um, uh, the appeal. Um, but in, in terms of how quickly, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I'm not sure if we could, okay. we could run a test and that's probably what, you know, What's concerning? Yeah, well, if, if I'm not mistaken, these things are pretty small, can fit in backpacks and briefcases now. The guy in the underground, Sean, I mean, I don't think it was a major setup. It, these things are pretty small, need some electricity, right? And battery power, even in some cases. So it, it is a little disconcerting that, you know, these people who are looking to cause some havoc um, still have technologies that we can't detect easily and quickly, you know. Um, all right. I want to get to some solutions. And Sean, we talked at length about private, not cyber frameworks, but privacy frameworks. And you said Brookfield was pretty far down the road. Can you give a high level overview of when you started, why you started, you know, what was the, the crisis moment or the epiphany? And then 
how many years and how many resources it took to get to the point where you've now got an established privacy, digital privacy framework throughout all of Brookfield or most of Brookfield? Yeah, so um, it, it really started with CCPA um, because we, while we operate globally and we are in Europe, um, our European entities are a bit smaller. And so each of the entities was individually responsible for making sure they were compliant. Um, CCPA has a unique provision um, under it called common branding. And so um, under it, if a, if a consumer cannot reasonably assume that they can determine um, you know, one company from another, they have to act as one. And Brookfield Properties, um, there are 17 wait, companies. Wait, wait, wait. Say that slowly, what, repeat that. So there's a, a, a concept called common branding. And so we have 17 companies that use the Brookfield Properties logo. And they're actually separate companies. So there's a separate CEO, separate CFO, separate everything, because there's Brookfield Properties Retail, which is our shopping malls. There's Brookfield Properties Development. They build buildings. Brookfield Properties Multifamily, Brookfield Properties Office, Brookfield Properties UK, so on and so forth. Each of those uses the exact same logo. They all share common websites. And so it's unreasonable to assume that a consumer would know that I have to go to Brookfield Properties Retail versus Brookfield Properties Development versus Brookfield Properties UK. So we have to operate as Brookfield Properties, which technically doesn't really exist as a company. <laughs> it's, not a, right. it's not actually a company. It's an awareness so, thing. Yeah, but because we all fall under Brookfield Properties, we have to respond to data subject requests appropriately. We have to have a common privacy policy and privacy notice. We have to you know, have the ability to respond. So if someone requests and says, hey, Brookfield Properties, what data do you have on me? Well, if you're a tenant in one of our office buildings, you work for the okay. building, and you live in one of our multifamily buildings, and you shop at one of our malls, or you've bought a home from us, we have a lot of information in different systems that are completely separated. So we have to have the ability to pull that data out and deliver it to you in a reasonable amount of time because there's a requirement around getting it to you. So um, we took the exercise to put in uh, several different tools to, to do data discovery and data mapping. Um, we put in a common data subject request process so that if you go to any of our websites and ask for information, it all feeds into my team. There's one team that's processing all requests. Um, we you put in. You get a lot. We don't get a ton. Um, we get a couple hundred a year, uh, a few hundred okay. a year. Um, you know, there's also um, privacy companies that do it on their behalf, like Privacy Bee. Um, if you're not familiar with Privacy Bee, you're lucky. Um, they're super annoying. It's basically a service I can pay for to go to Privacy Bee and say, "Hey, Privacy Bee, tell everyone I don't want them to have my information." And so I pay them hundred dollars a year. And they just send out spam messages to everyone saying, you know, please remove Sean Neal from your database. And you know, we get a lot of requests from Privacy B, but because of the way it's structured, um, they don't actually follow the, the legal ways of asking information, information to be removed. So we've pushed back on Privacy B to say, no, um, please give us the customer information. We will work directly with the customer and address their concerns. And that's how we handle it. But we still get a few hundred requests a year. It does take a lot of time to search all these various systems because we have so many. Um, but we had to go through and you know do a full data mapping. We had to go through and document our policy, why we take information, what information we take, the way we're using it, the way we retain it, like all of that has to be documented to be in compliance legally. So that, wow. that effort started in 2019. Um, we wrapped a lot of it up in 2020 and established a privacy team. Now with Connecticut passing the law, it's currently one and a half FTEs. And then there's a lawyer also who's at 50%. So roughly two, F two FTEs, but shared. Um, and it's going to grow. We know what we'll have to is as, as the number of laws increase and the number of requests we get increase, we'll grow the team to accommodate. Um, and 
you know, Connecticut has a law that goes into effect in the near future. Virginia has a law that goes into effect in the near future. Colorado has a law that goes into effect in the near future. CPRA, which is CCPA 2.0, goes into effect in the near future. So we have a lot of different yeah, things. Hold that, that, hold that thought for one second. That's, that's a question coming up on, on the various legislation. But I want to I want to take what you just said in, in respect to the framework and your capacity to do it as a company your size. And I'm going to go back to Farouz and Aaron saying, OK, you guys are smaller companies and there's companies even smaller than you in our industry. How do the smaller companies achieve what Brookfield's capable of? Because at some point, as people become more aware, everybody's going to have to deal with this. Aaron, you yeah. want to take a shot at it? Sure. I'll just, just note quickly on this and then pass it to Farouz. Um, I think we should talk about, you know, the organizations like uh, BCS, like um, the nonprofits that are coming together to help the industry. Uh, and I think that that's going to be critical and it's almost being offered as like a public service um, at this point. So um, we're, you know, engaged with Lucian and those guys um, with BCS to, you know, adopt the pieces of the framework that we can. But um, it only makes sense if the community comes together, right, where, you know, smaller operators can, you know, leverage the industry to keep everybody safer. Smaller operators don't even know a problem exists. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that makes them the most vulnerable. Now, maybe it also makes them the lesser of a target because they're not high profile. But I, 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 you know, if I'm a small retailer with some shopping centers and, you know, stuff like this is going on, I don't know about it. You know, how can I even begin to solve the problem? Cruz, I mean, what, yeah, what, what yeah. would you add from, to that? For the, my recommendation would be just doing a simple assessment, understanding what you have, what, what, where are your where's your data located, right? And a, a smaller organizations may have, a, you know, a smaller footprint for where that data is contained, right? And so that's where you would start and then identify, are there any high risk areas that you do need to address over time? But that's, you know, where you need to identify what your assets are that you need to, to protect, right? right, and control. Yeah, it, it, it has to be about leverage and collaboration because not every organization has the capacity to start from scratch, understand the problem, and then analyze and assess the problem and then put in you know, systems to prevent problems. So yeah, this is certainly a topic that we have to leverage, to your point, Aaron, uh, organizations, communities. To you know, there are people capable and willing to do the heavy lifting to get us. That's you know, uh, not a pitch for REC, but the Real Estate Cyber Consortium focusing more on the cyber, but privacy is right in there with it. There's another organization that is, you know, devoted to helping bring the best practices to the table so everybody doesn't have to, you know. All right, Sean, let's go back to, to your conversation, especially since it started your journey with CCPA. CCPA is the California law, GDPR is the European. You mentioned five or six more municipalities that are coming right down the road. People are paying attention, and instead of the uh, carrot, they're invoking the stick right? Legislation, okay? How does a building owner with assets in multiple, you know, regions keep up? You know, first they have to figure out what their problems are technically, you know, where's their exposure? Now they got to understand the laws of all these different places and have different policies for different, you know, different regions. How, give us a high level opinion on all the different laws that you have to um, live up to. Yeah, so I mean, we have to live up to. I mentioned the U.S. laws. Um, we also have Dubai. We have India, Australia, um, GDPR. Um, so we we spend and and when we operate in China, obviously China is the opposite side of the data privacy laws. 
you know, it, it's, a, it, it's a very interesting set of, of rules that we have to follow. So what we end up doing is um, we, we have local counsel in each of these areas. We also have outside counsel we use to advise us. Um, and if you were to look at our privacy notice on our website, you'll actually see it's broken out by country or region that we need to. So it'll say, you know, if you're a California resident, go here. If you're in Dubai, go here. If you're in Brazil, we do Brazil too, LGPD, go here. You know, it's, we, we have all of these different laws that we have to comply with. And then on our website, um, we use a, a, a common data subject request form. And so when you go in, you can go in and, and, and ask for your data. Um, there's there's certain languages supported. Um, there's different notices. We do geo fencing around it. So if you're in Europe, if you're in you know uh, Brazil, if you're in Dubai, you'll see a different form, um, and it will you know allow you to submit your information and, and go through a, a verification of who you are before we process the request. So it's 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 very complicated. Um, we obviously buy a third-party tool. We did not build this all internally, um, and it's I think it's 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 the only way to go to to achieve this because it's way too complicated otherwise. Well, and, and if you think about, you know, you need a privacy policy at the company level, you know, for all the information systems that gather, you know, data on your customers, your clients, then we need to go down to the building level, you know, a little sticker on the, on the window that says, you know, as you walk into this building with your smartwatch, your smartphone, your smart socks, you know, your smart glasses, that, that, uh, or not, you know, that, that your privacy whether it's video surveillance or you know tracking geo geotech whatever it is, um, that's a heavy lift, right? I mean, and it's certainly a heavy lift in a time when we're trying to figure out people are going back to malls, back to buildings, right? And and there may be financial pressure coming, you know, on the revenue side um, to then say, okay, I have this added burden of of making sure these buildings are secure from a privacy standpoint. I mean, how do you deal with that? that give and take. Uh, Aaron, you want to throw a comment at that? Um, it's, you know, it's, it, it is give and take, and it's really trying to find the balance of um, getting value out of the technical initiatives, getting value out of the data so the business can support them, and so you get management buy-in to do these while keeping your customers happy. And, and that's, um, and, and the, First part of that statement has been, you know, somewhat of a challenge is understanding, you know, we're talking about Rosie return on security investment. Uh, and if you, you know, aren't delivering, you know, results from the data or results from, um, you know, takeaways, then it's tough to continue funding it. So it's kind of a catch 22. It's um, you have to maintain the, you know, respect to your customers, but at the same time, you have to continue to prove value to the system, to ownership and management. So you can continue to fund and support the projects and, and grow your security footprint. And, and, and don't forget, you need other stickers on that door that deal with carbon neutrality and sustainability. And, you know, there's all these pressures now on the built environment to meet certain standards, you know, whether it's cyber, privacy, sustainability. You have to sit in rooms and prioritize because you don't have endless budgets. Right. You know, yeah. or, or resources, you know. Um, all right. So. I want to I want to jump to the question um, I, I said. Well, first first quick question. We've talked about all the gloomy, dark, scary stuff. Have any of you experienced a privacy breach of any note of any note you know at any scale? Farouz, start with you. No, no, we haven't had one yet. Obviously, you know it's not it's not if you're going to have it, it's when. Um, but in our situation, we haven't had anything in our building. That's good. That's good news. Why not? Okay. 
Aaron? No, nothing I can uh, recall or speak to, no. And then Sean, you got the biggest scale. How about you? Um, I would say there's nothing I can publicly comment on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I guess that, so, all right. So when you get the scale and a lot more you know, people walking into the doors, like uh, Farouk said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So organizations built, building owners, operators, service providers, property managers are all going to have to get involved in this. All right, so let's let's uh, pivot a little bit to the conversation of liability. And I know there may be folks who not, you know, again, can't speak to this, but let me give you my boardroom scenario, okay? And, and let's start to unpack the liability. So new building going up, it's gonna be state-of-the-art, it's gonna have, you know, the base building network, it's gonna be efficient for tenants to take advantage of that base building network, secured, parsed out, Everybody can have their own you know, part of that network and not have to redo it themselves. So the building goes up, Fortune 10 tenant takes the top floor, penthouse corporate executive. They build the coolest, meanest boardroom, high tech you can imagine. They get the, you know, the, uh, the designer in there to design you know, the, the, the space. You've got an MEP who touches the project. You've got a manufacturer who supplies products. You've got an integrator who's going to install it, a property management company slash service provider, third party. You may hire to manage it. You're the building owner. You've got some skin in the game. The tenant obviously has some responsibility. A couple months in, they're having a meeting and they're displaying you know, a new energy source that uh, will change the world. They're going to make gazillions of dollars and somebody happens to have breached that conversation through a microphone in the, the lighting system over the, the boardroom table. And the original purpose of that microphone was simply to say, lights on, lights off. They didn't want to use switches anymore. They wanted to use voice commands. But somebody figured out a way to get to that piece of equipment from across the street or around the world, listen to the conversation, beat the company to the punch, and it cost them billions of dollars. Now let's start unpacking the liability, okay? because lawsuits will prevail. Who, who? Somebody said earlier, you go for the ones with the deepest wallet. I get that. But let's let's piece, pick it apart a little bit. Is it mutual responsibility? Is it, who, who's responsible in that particular situation? Sean, you, it looks like you've got an answer. Yeah, there, there's nuance there, but in general, we don't install the lighting system. So the, the tenants are responsible for all of the technology inside of their own space. What if they um, use your they, network? We don't allow anyone to use our network. It's not, some it's some owners do. Some yeah. some owners actually sell that as a selling point. Come into our building, use our network, lower your TI costs and time frame. Don't have to call anybody. Just plug in. A couple buildings that we actually profiled a couple of years back in DC. We have services like that, like um, you know, the 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 co-working space type of offerings. We do have co-working space offerings where we do offer the technology. Um, in those, um, we generally you know have the, the, the leases will have liability clauses in it um, that will govern what, what's done there. We also generally outsource all technology and security to a third party provider with the liability so that they're they're entirely responsible for updating, owning, maintaining, you know, dealing with issues. Everything is, is a third party provider, not directly owned by us. So so you would claim no liability as the building owner at all? It's not our technology. We don't have access to it. We didn't install it. Um, you know, you're you're essentially agreeing to uh, uh, the liability that's been put on the provider that installed it. 
Okay. And, and if by chance they inadvertently used your wireless network? They can't. We have controls in place to, um, to block that. Okay. Good answers. Farooz? Yeah, I would agree with that. It would be the service vendor that we put in that would come in and they would they would assume the liability from an amenities amenities perspective. We have the splash screen when you join that, you know, references our privacy policy um, and and therefore the 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 uh, user assumes the responsibility of that of that amenity Wi-Fi. So and we do control um, the network that we have is obviously based on the the service provider that that, that assumes it. Yeah. And this was not meant to be a loaded question, but I just thought of it. Aaron, you have some very specific experience with this, not with a boardroom, but with a contractor who came and sold you the services. You had an issue and then came back and wanted to sell you the solutions when they shouldn't have been there. I'm talking about the building in Israel, right? Um, ah. <laughs> Who, 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 who's responsible? Well, they, this does. So I'm going to um, give you kind of a, an example of something that's happened here that is not technical related, not IT related, but is the same relationship and the outcome. So we had a building um, in one of our suburb properties that was three or four years old. And then all of a sudden the window started shattering, the exterior windows, one after the next. So we can't, contact the contractor, the contractor says it's the window company. Window company says, no, it's the glass company. The glass company says, no, it's the, it's the gas company that sits between the glass. The gas company says, no, it's the company that made the adhesive that brings, you know, that made it too tight. So it was this daisy chain of effect of people passing the buck. And what happened at the end of the day is car properties had to resolve that problem. Even though we did nothing, we did nothing wrong, but it's because our customers are at risk. Our brand is at risk, and we just had to do the right thing. Now, it might Good be a little analogy. bit different if there's ten billion dollars of IP, an IP suit um, that that has come about. But um, I think you you can't just blindly go into this and say it's not our fault, not our responsibility. Because at the end of the day, your name is on the building, and your relationship with customers is. Um, you know, is where and, the, that, and that's snarky news reporter that's chasing around who doesn't understand the technology, but it's going to make a mess of you in the press. Yeah. Uh, and most people won't understand the technical nuances that we are all talking about. You're right. Your brand could be could be exposed. Well, I think that's just it. Right. You asked about liability, which I assume you meant legal liability. Yeah, There's a difference in, in brand and reputation that that comes up from all of this. Totally. Yeah. Yep. All right, so um, one, I got one more question, Sean, that you, we were going to talk about. I don't know where this fits or if I missed it, but you talked about a DSR process that, that you've got in place. Is, did we, have we covered that, or is that something you want to add a final thought to? I, I think I covered it, just mentioning that we have you know, a common uh, a DSR process, data subject request process. And I think that it was one of the poll questions I had suggested was to say, does everyone have one? Because it's interesting, as we've, as we've been talking, you know, as we do acquisitions, we do a lot of M&A at Brookfield. One of the first things we do when we start looking at a target is we look at their websites and see, you know, is there, how's their privacy policy posted? Is it, is it up to date? Do they have, you know, any sort of cookie notices? Are they using cookies? What types of cookies? And we look at their, their DSAR process to see if it exists. A lot of times we find that companies don't have a mature DSAR process. They're not necessarily in line with California law or GDPR or other, uh, other applicable laws. 
um, because there are very specific regulations over what you have to have posted on your website. There's specific regulations over how easy it is to submit those types of requests. And um, I, I'm just you know, curious to see how everyone is doing it, have they thought about it and, and, and what they're doing to make sure that they're compliant. Okay. Um, we also, we asked, we did a poll in the beginning uh, about people's personal perspective on privacy. Uh, Ian, Chuck, maybe we can throw up the results. Be curious to see how the audience uh, had, uh, had responded. What is your concern level about how technology companies are collecting and using your perfect or your personal data? So if everybody can answer that, and then um, let's see uh, let's see what the answers are. Ian, do we get those pretty uh, pretty immediately? Seventy percent. Oh, there, there we go. Seventy-four percent highly concerned. Somewhat concerned, and nobody. That, so we got the right audience. That's good. So Ian, while I'm asking the um, the folks to uh, wrap up, one more quick poll. How many of you have a privacy uh, policy on your website? So, uh, oh, you already got it. Okay, good. So let's answer this one real quick. Uh, does your company have your privacy notice posted on the website, either for the organization and or buildings? A simple yes, no, or not sure. Let's see what the answers are here. Give everybody a couple minutes, a couple seconds. Yes, 61%, 16% no, 23% not sure. So really it's 61.39. That's good, that's actually higher than I thought. So we've got we've got a lot of folks who've been focusing on this already. All right, so we only have a few minutes left. Um, Aaron, long journey, long conversation. Um, just starting, first inning, first game. What advice, insight would you give to the audience as far as the specific journey of pro digital privacy inside buildings going forward? Maybe a minute. Uh, sure, so two things. Uh, from the customer's perspective, uh, transparency on what you're collecting, control on when to turn off and turn on that, that data as much as possible is, um, is gonna be key. At the same time, I'm sitting in the seat of, of the innovation group within the business. Uh, don't let, Si the the fear of cyber the fear of uh of privacy concerns stifle your innovation efforts good point yeah yeah and and sean actually before you give yours i mean we talked at length about some projects you were working on that had you know the capacity to have cameras embedded in the screens as people were viewing kind of figure out if there was a man a woman you know age to, to put the right kind of marketing you elected not to do it right so so that in line with Aaron is the transparency part of it, right? And then also the good decision making behind it. So, you know, big conversation. How do you end it? Well, what's your what's your advice to the audience? I mean, I would just tell everyone that the most important thing we're talking about privacy is knowing what data you have, why you have it, and, and, and where you're storing it. To Aaron's point, we don't want to stop the business from doing what they need to do. We don't want to impede innovation. We don't want to impede amenities for our, our tenants. We want to make sure that we enable as much as possible, but we want to do it in a, in a very conscious and thoughtful way so that we're not violating anyone's privacy. We're not collecting data that's unexpected or doing something that might feel uncomfortable, like the coffee shop uh, you know, that we showed at the beginning. So you know, we want you know, just to be as, as transparent as possible. Transparency is key with all of this. And um, as long as you're, you're, you're putting in the right cyber controls, as long as you're being open and honest with what you're doing, um, it shouldn't be a concern and you should be able to get whatever you need um, and as long as you're operating um, openly. Right. Bruce, final thought. 
I think your mic is on mute. Yeah, sorry. Um, to understand, again, like these guys said, is understand what you have so that you can ensure that there is a tenant experience, a user experience, a, a great experience in our buildings, because that's what our building owners and, and our staff is looking for, is how do we how do we have that hospitality type experience to our tenants and our guests um, into the building and these ease of using your devices and connecting and, and, and ensuring again that that as you walk through the building you're 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 getting to the access that you need and you're you're enjoying that experience but also those controls right ensuring that everybody from the top down or from the bottom up understands that that privacy is very important along with the security of those controls. Well, my, my th final thought is, first of all, thank you to all three of you for the big brains you possess, but also your willingness to share. Um, this is sometimes a sensitive topic and organizations don't like to be out in the front. And I wanna thank you for your willingness to do that. Second of all, I'm gonna finish up where we started with the race against China. Uh, I would encourage you to read that uh, that document that has been posted the, um, about uh, the social credit scoring and surveillance state, because in the weeks and months to come, people in the United States are gonna be hearing more and more about the, the technology competition race with China. Uh, 5G, AI, uh, many industries, they are at this very point in time, well ahead of us. So while they, they pick a decision and go, we, thank God, have to have conversations like this and debate, you know, the, the tenets of, of freedom of speech and privacy. Um, but it will, if we're not careful, to Aaron's point about don't let it stop you, it could curtail innovation, right? So we're, we have to keep up in this new race that it requires us to run fast, in some cases with one hand tied behind our back because we want the debate. So I really, our, our goal is over the next three to six months is to continue to raise awareness on this, have these conversations. We can't do it without you guys and your companies. And I just, again, want to say thank you for your willingness to sit and discuss this very, very important topic. So Chuck, back to you. Very good. All right. Thanks, Jim. I do want to have Ian throw up the poll results of the attendees so we can just see a quick result of that and get it in the recording because other, may, other people may want to see that. Can we take a look at that, Ian, before we go? That was uh, give you a, a sense of the level of attendees, manager level and senior executive. You're well over almost 60 percent. So uh, Man, with security. Uh, so it's a good balance. I think that I, I wanted to just get that included into the into the show notes here so that when people view this as a recording, they'd be able to see who who was who was answering those polls. So that was good. Thanks again to all the panelists. Uh, great job. Uh, tremendous amount of information and to the live audience that participated. Again, that's what these are, are for, for your incoming questions. We had some good questions that came in uh, and the responses. I do want to recommend uh, going to realcom.com slash uh, the webinars tab, look at the past webinars. You'll see the others in this series along with others that we've recorded throughout the day. Uh, and whether you've joined this as a live recording or watching it later, uh, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to register for the next level in the series. I don't know, Ian, do we have a slide on that? Uh, that is the, uh, what we got, Realcom Live coming up on Friday. Uh, so a good conversation, Jim, you have uh, that one planned. And then also the beginning of our Top of Mind series, ESG, uh, with a, a, a great uh, group there. Also, uh, still time left to register for Cortec. That's uh, on November 16th in San Jose. Any other thoughts on Cortec, Jim, before 
I, before we sign yeah, I mean, all eyes are on the tenants. All eyes are on the tenants. Cortex has been in Silicon Valley for about seven to 10 years. We are there with the LinkedIn's, the Facebook's, the Google's. It's not a big event. It's a more of an intimate, smaller event where we roll up sleeves and figure out what the heck is next for hybrid office, return to work, managing uh, portfolios. Technology touches them in ways they're moving forward. They care about this stuff. So it is primarily for corporate real estate, technology, facility, and, and workplace executives. But for any of the, the tech folks on the commercial side, the landlord side, I'd encourage you to go as well because you get to hear what your tenants uh, are talking about. And then we're working on it, should have this uh, answered by the beginning of next week, but we are going to have some demonstrations of some technologies that not many people have seen on the planet. It plays right into the immersive experience that we're going to be expecting in the hybrid office, maybe even the hybrid retail experience. So we got some surprises planned that, uh, again, that's what we do. We dig, we find, and then we, we you know, All share right, well, you, know, you know, Jim, you know what's going to happen. People are going to turn, put their phones in airplane mode as they're walking around now because because everything they heard on here and they don't need to be in Paris when you're tracking them. So, all right, well, that's it for us today. Thank you guys so much. We wish you all well and uh, be safe. And uh, that's it for us today. Thank you. Thank you again. Sorry, one, one quick note. There was a question that came through the chat asking what the what the passive tool was. Um, and the tool is Armis, A-R-M-I-S. Um, I think it was uh, Sue asked about it. Perfect. Got it. And all I right, encourage thanks. all of you guys, your your influencers in your own right, post the link to this up to your LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, because it's just important to get the word out. Um, you know, and it's through people like you that people respect and want to listen to. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. All right. Great. Thanks. Thank you.